So today we're going to begin a new focus. It's a focus on prayer. And I want to invite all of you in the church family to join us in this 30-day prayer focus. You're going to get a really cool booklet like this uh, when you leave today. And uh, we want you to take one. We want you to use it. It's also going to be on the church app, all right? And if you're still wondering about that, um, it's really easy to download and to use. Um, and I think, you know, praying together for 30 days, it's a profound opportunity for us to get on the same page. You know, we often are just going in our separate little directions. We're all praying about things that are important to us. But we're also, if in the 30 days, we're going to be focusing on things that affect us as a church family. And that can be really powerful uh, to be on the same page and to be in an alignment before God. And... Uh, to grow in our gospel effectiveness, because that's what growing forward is all about. It's how can we be more effective with the gospel? Author Philip Yancey writes, now listen carefully, he says, if prayer stands as the place where God and human beings meet, then I must learn about prayer. He wants to learn about prayer. I don't know about you, I still have a lot of growing to do when it comes to prayer. And then he continues, most of my struggles in the Christian life circle around the same two things. Why doesn't God act the way we want God to? Why doesn't God do what I want him to? And then he says, uh, and why I don't act the way God wants me to? Because I don't always follow through. He says, Prayer is the precise point where these things converge. Who God is and who I am to be. Nehemiah finds himself precisely at this point in the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to look at chapter 1 today and a little bit of chapter 2. So I invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah in your Bibles and your smartphones and stuff. It's page 333 if you grab a Bible. Some of you are forgetting to grab the Bibles as you come in. If you need one, I would encourage that. It's very helpful. At the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah finds himself in a dark situation. Uh, let me read the, the first few verses here. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1 the words of Nehemiah, son of, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Notice how he responds. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And we're going to look at this in more detail. This is a dark situation. The time and place. 
Okay. The, it begins the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. There are three Nehemiahs in the Bible, so this identifies who he is and who his father is. It takes place in the month of Kislev. For us, this is a November-December time period, and it's the 20th year. It's the 20th year of the king, and the king is named Artaxerxes, and he is a Persian ruler. And the place, while I was in the citadel of Susa, and this is the Persian palace, of, winter palace of the king of Persia. How in the world did they get there? Well, it's a long, long story. I'm going to tell you some of it. Um, let's look at the place in Susa. We have a map. I don't know if you can see it. It's on the right. And you'll see Babylon. Are those easy to see? I'm a little bit colorblind, and they're a little hard for me to see. And then there's Jerusalem down on the lower left. So God's people are supposed to be near Jerusalem, some of them in Jerusalem, and that's where the nation Israel is. But here is Nehemiah, and he's way over in Susa, because God's people have been carried into captivity two different times. And that's where Nehemiah ends up. The occasion is verse 2, Hanani, one of my brothers, Nehemiah says, this is probably actually a biological brother. He came from Judah, and that's where Jerusalem is. He came from Judah with some other men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. Exile being when they were carried off into captivity. And also about Jerusalem, because some of these people have returned back to Jerusalem. I'm going to tell you about that. So, Nehemiah has just gotten this first-hand report. It's from his brother. He's been there. He's tasted the food. He's seen the ruins. He's seen the discouragement and the attitude of God's, peace, God's people. And, um, you know, it's more than just getting a little newsflash. This is his brother. And he's saying, this is how it is. Jerusalem, as you know, was God's chosen people where his temple was built. It was built first by Solomon. 141 years earlier, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem and he tore down the city and he tore down the temple. He destroyed the city and he carried off a lot of the people from Jerusalem into captivity. This included Daniel and his friends 141 years before Nehemiah. And then about 540 B.C., about 50,000 Jewish countrymen returned to rebuild the temple destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So they go back to Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, and they begin to restore worship. Eighty years later, in 460 B.C., Ezra the priest led a, another group into Jerusalem because it the worship had fallen, uh, fallen uh, to the side. It was not as a priority like it was. And uh, Ezra goes to restore worship back in Jerusalem. Now it's 445 B.C. And here comes that report. Verse 3. 
Those who survive the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. God's people are in trouble. God's people are a disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, a city wall in the ancient world was extremely important. It was about protecting your people from, from, uh, from, other, from enemies, from, from raiders, from robbers. Protecting In Jerusalem, it protected the temple of God. And that was a very important place, a very valuable place. And there was a ton of gold, tons of gold in that place, actually. And um, the, the city wall was just cru- crucial for uh, ancient people. Um, God's people are weak. They are afraid. God's reputation is at an all-time low. The God of the Jewish people doesn't seem so great and powerful to God's people. And God's city is still in ruins. And this news was devastating to Nehemiah. Would it have been devastating to you? You know, I don't know how, how I would respond to this. Nehemiah is just devastated that God's person, God's character has been, um, there's been an affront And the crisis response, verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He sat and wept. How did you feel when you heard about 9-11? You can probably remember where you were. A lot of you can. And as you watched the towers collapse, one at a time, and you saw the people fleeing, and you heard the reports about people jumping out of the window. Our nation was under attack, and the world changed after 9-1-1. Nehemiah cared much more deeply than you and I cared about 9-1-1. Nehemiah mourned. He experienced deep grief. He fasted. That means he chose not to eat uh, food because he sensed how this grieved the heart of God. God has been waiting 141 years for his people to get their act together, to just do the things that they were instructed a thousand years earlier with Moses to learn to obey, to learn to walk with him, to be true worshipers. God was waiting for his people. And he brought them back to their own land so that they could do that. Um, Nehemiah gets it. He sees God's heart and the pain caused by his people with so little faith. They're so fearful. Nehemiah wanted to take action. One of the things about him, he is a man of action. He wants to do things. Um, But he is not going to take action yet. He will not take action until he knows uh, what God has him to do. 
He prays, and he prays, and he prays. And we see this in verses uh, 5 through 11, the crisis prayer. Uh, And I'm going to break it down a little bit for us because there's some things we can see, some things we can learn from this prayer. Uh, He begins with adoration in verse 5, and Nehemiah says, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. You know, we throw around that word awesome like it's, you know, every, you know you're awesome, everybody's awesome, this is awesome. That's not exactly what Nehemiah means. Uh, he begins by talking about Lord, the God of heaven. He's, he, he acknowledges the sovereignty of God who is in heaven over the earth. He calls him a great an awesome God. He speaks of God's power, his greatness, that he's awesome. Uh, Speaks of his majesty. He reminds God of his love for his own people. He keeps a covenant of love. The law of the Old Testament was a covenant of love because he loved his people and he gave them promises. He keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. It makes a difference if you follow. If you love him and if you follow, it makes all of the difference. He's saying God is faithful. And this is right out of the law. Exodus 20, verse 6. And God promises for those who love him for generation after generation. God is faithful to his promise. Nehemiah's prayer reminds us, and it begins with who God is. And from Nehemiah, we can learn how to approach God. He approaches God with great humility. He is clear that God is God and that Nehemiah is not. God is the Lord and Nehemiah is his servant. Verses 6 and 7, we come to confession. And so he gets it right off, right off the bat. He starts with confession. He says, to God, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Nehemiah calls himself a servant. And you know, that's just really good to be reminded once in a while. That's who we are. If we are followers of Christ, we are servants. We are servants of the true and living God. We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Nehemiah calls God's people God's servants. That's putting God in his rightful place and us in our rightful place. And then he brings his confession. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Now, I'm guessing that as he prayed this, He made a list for his family, for himself, and for his nation. By the way, have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed for, confessed more than your own sins? Have you confessed the sins of your family where you live? The sins of your parents? The sins of your adult kids? The sins of your church? Have you ever done that? Nehemiah models this. He's praying for his people. 
Or should we confess the sins of our nation? Verse 7, we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So he speaks to God humbly. He tells the truth. He doesn't ignore or deny his own sin and the sins of his family and his people. And it's just, it's just a really good reminder. How honest are you with God? You know, sometimes we kind of approach God like, he didn't really see that, did he? He doesn't know about that, does he? Of course he does. Request comes in verses 8 through 11. He says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Nehemiah is reminding God of what God has already said in his word. Specifically here, Leviticus chapter 26. And the amazing thing is, so God gave the law a thousand years earlier. It's around 1446 B.C. is what a conservative date for the exodus of Israel. So that's Moses coming out of Egypt. So think in terms of the laws given in that era. So a thousand years later, Nehemiah is reminding God about his instructions. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. God said he would do that. It's exactly what happened. Babylon came in and carried them off. Assyria came in and carried off the ten tribes of the north. It's already happened. God has been faithful to his word. First, scattering the nation. First, it was the Assyrian captivity, 722 B.C., and then 586 B.C., scattering Judah into the Babylonian captivity. But God also gave a promise in Deuteronomy chapter 30, in the law of the Old Testament. But if you return to me, verse 9, and obey my commands, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon. God said this a thousand years earlier. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. One of the things that we know about Nehemiah is he knew the scriptures. He understood the big picture and how God has worked in history and how God's promises affect today. And he is asking God, based on his word, to do what God said he would do. He says in verse 10, They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Nehemiah is just reminding God of redemption. He has redeemed the nation Israel out of Egypt. He has paid their price and he's brought them out. They are his people, they are chosen, and they have promises. Nehemiah is just reminding God of what he has already said. Verse 11, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. He's asking for God to hear. He's asking for God to answer his prayer and the prayers of his people who love him. 
And then he says, here's the request. He's finally going to get to it. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Well, what man? Well, it's his boss. And his boss is the king of Persia. He's praying that God would give his servant Nehemiah success by, by granting him favor, by granting him grace. When we dishonor God, we're swimming upstream against God. When we follow Christ, we are given God's favor, his grace. And, and Nehemiah is asking for that. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then Nehemiah just adds his position in the kingdom, in the human kingdom. And he says, very simply, I was cupbearer to the king. Well, what is that? He was cupbearer, table waiter, one of the many hundreds of servants in the palace. He was a bit more than that. In ancient cultures like this, the cupbearer was a very, very privileged position. One of the things that he did was he poured a very small ladle of wine out of a pitcher or a container before the king, and then he tasted it himself before he poured the wine for the king so that no one would poison the king. This was a security measure. This is, Nehemiah is like the secret service, and he's like the top guy. And Nehemiah is like a cabinet member because he is in the inner circle of the king, and the king asks for advice from this man who is in the inside. In fact, Nehemiah, as a cupbearer, gave uh, allowed people to come in to see the king, and he kept them from seeing the king. And that even included some family members could not come in if they did not have permission. This is a very privileged position. Somehow, we don't know the story, somehow Nehemiah has earned this position because he was selected. We come to chapter or number three, an action step of faith comes to chapter 2. And here's the situation, verses 1 and 2. It happens in the month of Nisan, and that's March and April. We were 445 B.C. in November, December. Now we're March, April, uh, 444 B.C. Four months later, in the 20th year of king, same year of King Artaxerxes, the 20th year is his, his reign, 20 years, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, per usual. Okay? I, I had not been sad in, the pres in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? The king notices. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now, this is a potentially very dangerous situation for Nehemiah. Because one of the things that we don't appreciate about ancient cultures and ancient kings, sort of the perspective of the king was, if you are in my presence, do you guys do this at home? If you are in my presence, it's a great privilege for you. 
and you, and you should be happy to be in my presence. That was the attitude of a king with the people in his court. And if you uh, expressed sadness on your point or disappointment on your part, or if you were depressed in the king's presence, you dishonor the king. And that's very dangerous. We saw that in Egypt, clear back in the book of Genesis. And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. He's just honest. This is a serious situation that the king has noticed. His desire to have an impact for his God is it is in jeopardy right now. I was very much afraid. And Nehemiah acknowledges his fear. It's real. He could lose his job. He could lose his life if the king chose. It could be viewed as dishonoring his king. Now, one of the reasons that Nehemiah is afraid is that Nehemiah already knows that the king is a part of the problem. The king is one of the reasons that Jerusalem is in a shambles. Because the king, Artaxerxes, made a decree in Ezra chapter 4, verse 21, that all the building, the rebuilding in Jerusalem must stop. And it's in Ezra 4, 21. So Artaxerxes is the one who said, it's got to stop. Because he heard a rumor about what was going on in Jerusalem and they have had a bad history because there were great kings like David and Solomon who started to rule large, vast areas and collected taxes. And so Artaxerxes is not going to have anything to do with that if they start to rebuild. And so he makes a decree, Ezra 4.21. Now one of the things that Nehemiah illustrates for us, I think is something the Apostle Paul taught in Philippians chapter 4, verses 20, uh, 6 and 7. So we get this in the first century. Nehemiah didn't get this verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And Nehemiah is in a real situation, and he, he has fear, and it's, it's, it's real. His outer circumstances are in jeopardy. But Nehemiah prayed. How long did Nehemiah pray? Four months. He's been praying for this opportunity for four months. He's been praying about a solution from God for four months. He's, he's been praying for a resolution. He's been praying for a plan. How can this happen? What action can be taken? But he hasn't taken the action. And he presents his request to God. He continued to present his request to God. He continued to present his request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't know that Nehemiah experienced this exactly the way that Paul wrote it. But one of the things that Nehemiah got through his prayer was clarity, clear thinking, he wasn't overwhelmed by his circumstances. He came up with a plan. He came up with some action steps. 
He prayed and he waited on God, and God gave him clarity, and God Let's go to verses 3 and 4. It's an opportunity. Nehemiah now addresses his king. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. I kind of jumped ahead of myself just a space or two, so just bear with me. I'm coming back here. I said to the king, may the king live forever. He speaks with appropriate courtside etiquette. I don't think he really thinks the king should live forever, but that's the way you talk to a king. Why, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lied in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, Nehemiah is politically sensitive to this situation. He's politically sensitive to the king. He knows the king has said no rebuilding in Jerusalem. And now he's going to come to the king for a request about Jerusalem. But what does he say? When the city where my ancestors are buried lies and its gates have been destroyed by fire. He's describing Jerusalem, but he doesn't say Jerusalem because that's going to be a hot button for the king. But he talks about Nehemiah is a trustworthy man. He's honored by the king and a, a, the place of burial was a very important in the ancient world. That Nehemiah's ancestors, where they are buried, is in shambles. The city where Nehemiah is from is in shambles. That strikes a chord for the king. The king said to me, What is it you want? It's still a little bit risky. Now Nehemiah has the chance. He has been waiting and praying for four months for this opportunity. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. We don't know exactly what he prayed. It was very simple. It was very short. But he's been praying for this for four months. It's pretty clear. He knows what he's asking God. God knows what he's asking. And here he has this opportunity. By the way, what do we learn about this? What do we learn about Nehemiah? What do we learn about prayer? Pray first. Pray first before you take your action. Pray first before you speak. And if you're invested in the, in the opportunity and the situation, we see uh, what, verse 5, the request. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king. So Nehemiah's made a request to God. And he's made a request to God about speaking to a man. And now he gets to make the request to the man that he's been speaking to God about. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in, Judea, where my, in, in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now, Nehemiah is ready. He's bold. He takes an action step. Now is the time to do something. Now is the time to take the risk. He is prayed up. He senses the leading of God and he speaks. 
And he speaks openly and honestly. He is explicit. He asks for the impossible because of what the king had already announced 20 years earlier, no more rebuilding in Jerusalem. And so I... So um, what about the rest of the story? You know, we could do the rest of the story. We've got a couple of minutes. Nehemiah had a plan. He will risk everything for God's work. He will risk everything for God's work. His plan is to leave. Now, think about his position. He's very comfortable. He's in the palace of the king. He could be there the rest of his life. We don't know about his family. But he has a plan to leave the, the palace and go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls of the city to protect the temple of God and the people of God. He will need a 12-year vacation to do this. He will need a formal a set of formal written documents to go from one territory to the other to get permission to travel through because this is a Jewish man in a Persian world. Nehemiah's boss is the most powerful man on the face of the earth in 444 B.C. King Artaxerxes granted Nehemiah's request. Nehemiah went to Jerusalem. He rallied the discouraged people. He rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. And And the people had weapons in one hand and tools in the other. And God gave favor to Nehemiah. Nehemiah uh, could have sat there comfortably in the palace, but he risked everything uh, for God. And let's see, we've got a map again. Think about this. So Nehemiah is going to pack up, take a 12-year trip. That's over 1,000 miles. Divide that by 20 miles a day. He's going to risk everything to do this for God. Um, What what do we learn? Pray first. Pray before you make decisions. Pray when you need clarity. Pray first when you see, when you need God's timing. Pray first when you need to know the steps to take. Here's something that Nehemiah knew about God. Jeremiah 32, 17. This is Jeremiah speaking. This is before Nehemiah. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nehemiah believed that. Do you and I believe that? Nothing is too hard for God. In Nehemiah, we see a man who knows God and what he is like. We see a man who knows the scriptures. He knows the promises of God. He knows the the big picture. He knows how God has worked in the past. He has experience with God in his own life. 
my suggestion is let's remind each other to pray first. We can do that. We can do it in our homes. Sue often reminds me. We can, husbands and wives can remind each other. We can remind our kids. We can remind when we're in a group setting. We can remind each other to pray first before we come up with all the answers. Uh, start your day with prayer. Start your meal with prayer. Start your job with prayer. Start your ministry with prayer. Pray first. I want to close with um, Ephesians chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians in the first century, and he speaks about God. And it's a benediction, it's a blessing, and, and we learn a lot about God in here. Now to him who is able, he's deserving of worship, we should give him praise, we should give him thanks. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Based on what? According to his power that is, that is at work within us. Our God is able to do way more than we ask. More than we imagine. That's our God. That's what, that's what we know about him. It's according to the power at work with in us. What power is that? Well, it would be the power of the Holy Spirit. It would be the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That kind of power. To him be the glory. He deserves the glory. He deserves the honor. He deserves the credit. It's about his reputation. He deserves to be magnified in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Do you think God would be glorified to do more in our church? Do you think he'd be willing to do, to do more than we ask or imagine at the bridge? To reach more and more people. Let's ask him. And think about that over these next 30 days. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for prayer, and I confess that I still have a lot to learn. I thank you for the focus that we have in these next 30 days to bring our requests before you together as a church family and as individuals as well. God, we believe that you can supply more than we ask or imagine. May you grow our hearts as a church in prayer. May we grow in our dependency on you. May we think about intentionally praying first. May we seek your kingdom first. Lord, we know you've called us to make disciples in all the nations. Help us to be effective in that. Show us the way we ask. Give us wisdom. Give us skill. 
Give us opportunities to share the gospel with friends and families and neighbors. Give us opportunities to send people into our world. Raise up people who are willing to risk everything for the sake of Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.